0: Summer of 1967, the hippie mu- movement was in full force. This movement was known as a countercultural counterculture movement. How many of you this morning you would have described yourself as a hippie? For those of you showing your age, there's a few of you are here this morning, wonderful. Uh, well, this this movement was mainly made up of mainly young college students and younger people, and this movement stood up and oppose the culture of the day. In a world at the time where violence and war was the norm, the hippies stood up and they said, make love, not war. And they believed in living freely. They believed in not being bound, like living the rest of uh, culture, like everybody else in their culture. And Cultural boundaries were passed, and things like love, Peace, drugs, and free, limit, free living became a lot of their lifestyles. I'm sure not all of you this morning are hippies, took part in everything. But that was the definition of a hippie. And then in the summer of 1969, uh, many in the hippie movement had descended on the city of San Francisco. And thousands had gathered for some different pop festivals that were going on. And they gathered with the promise to change or to cast off the conservative values uh, that the culture of the day demanded. And they freely experimented in San Francisco with sex and drugs. It became known as the Summer of Love. And during this summer, the Summer of Love, the media and the rest of America suddenly sat up and started to take notice of this hippie movement. Before, it was just seen as just young people doing things that young people do. But now, they started to realize this actually could change the culture of America. And it actually was this summer, 1969, the Summer of Love, when... America's culture started to be reshaped, and America itself was never the same again. Now, there's a lot of stuff that went on in the Summer of Love that we probably would not approve of. There's a lot of things that, that were not good, but one thing it did do, it did change the shape of the culture of the day. And I ask you this morning, what if this summer... In 2014, what if this summer became a season where we could redefine our culture and the culture of our church? What, what if this summer could change your outlook on life and your outlook on God? What if this summer you could experience real love, real joy, and real peace like you've never experienced it Before, And that's my hope, that over the next several weeks as we discuss this series called The Summer of Love, my hope is that we will have our very own Summer of Love here at Generation Church. You know, if you've read the Bible or you've been around church long enough, you'll probably be aware that most people say that God is love. You've probably seen it around in bumper stickers. God is love. You've probably realized that God loves you, that you're supposed to love God, and then you're also supposed to love your neighbor, and you're even supposed to love your enemies. Well, if that's the case, what does this really mean? What really is love? How are we supposed to show love towards others and towards God? I'll give you a clue this morning. It doesn't involve sex and drugs, just to let you know. So we're not talking about the things that the hippies talked about. However, it does involve living a life that is free of the constraints of our culture. And we'll learn over the next several weeks what real love is, and we'll find that real love is counter to what our culture says it is. And so this morning, let's begin the summer of love. If you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn to the first book of John, chapter 4. The first book of John, chapter 4. And we're going to read... Verse 10. And this is how we're going to start this series, this summer of love, with this verse. And we're going to have a look at the, the whole series, lots of different verses in the Bible. Um, there's one verse that is going to be the mainstay, and we'll talk about that next week of what we're going to talk about. But today, I want us to launch off from 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. This is what it says The apostle John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, said, <coughs> This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Do you hear that? I'll read that again. It says, This is real love. Not just some kind of fake love, but this is real love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent of his son to die for us. So the Apostle John, he makes this statement. He says that God was the one who first loved us. God was the one who first loved us. In fact, God was the one who formed us. Then he pursued after us. He found us and now he continually pours his love upon us. I remember one of the days when I was a, uh, a, a young child, I was in Sunday school, and my Sunday school teacher said to me, he says, Alex, he says, why do we love God? Just a question. And I remember at that moment, it was like I had one of those profound moments. Remember when Peter, when, when, uh, God, uh, when Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter said uh, that you are the Christ. And it was like those profound moments. And sometimes uh, you'll surprise yourself by having some profound moments. Now, I haven't had many profound moments in my life, I'll be honest. But this was one of those profound moments. And the Sunday school teacher, he said to me, he says, Alex, why do we love God? And it's just like something within me just came out and it said, because he first loved us. And he turned to me, he goes, perfect. That's the perfect answer. And so, before we go on this morning, this is what I wanted to say. And what we'll, we'll, that there, there's on the screen. If we look at what, what's going to come on the screen, uh, one of the points, and it says this: it says, "We love God because He first loved us. We love Him because He first loved us." It wasn't because we love God, now God loves us. It wasn't because we became this wonderful Christian that now God loves us. It wasn't because we decided one day we wanted to go to church, now God loves us. No, we love God because God first loved us. It wasn't because God did things for us. It wasn't because he poured out blessings on us that we love him. It's not because uh, he can help us out in our time of need that we love him. But it's because he poured his love on us. Now in return, if you are a believer of Jesus Christ, you love God because of that very reason. You know, just because a parent, we've got lots of new parents in, in, in our church. We are the church that is like the baby machine. Pregnant women everywhere. It's like crazy. But, but we got lots of babies. And you take a parent. And a parent does not love their child because their child loves them. The moment a mother holds a newborn child, suddenly that mother starts to pour her love on that child. That child has no ability to love that mother back at that point. That that child doesn't even comprehend what love is. They don't know how to show love. They don't really even know what love feels like. But yet, even without being loved back at that moment, that parent will first pour their love on that child. And that's exactly what God does to you. Before you even have the ability to love God, before you even knew what love was, before you even were able to show love to God, First, God poured his love upon you like a parent pours their love upon their child. And so if that's the case, how does God show his love upon us? And this morning, I want us to look at three things that show us how God shows his love upon us. And this morning, you may have come into this place with a lot of baggage. A lot of things may be weighing you down. But I pray today you will go out freed because of the love of Jesus Christ and the love of God. And so the first thing, that the first way that God shows his love upon us is by this. He is gracious and compassionate. He is gracious and compassionate. You can always tell the love of somebody by the grace and the compassion that they give to others. You know, we often hear at weddings that love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering, love does not keep a, a record of wrongdoing, and so forth. How willing someone is to forgive another or show grace to another is a good indicator of how much they love them. I'll give you an example. I'm driving my car, and my wife is behind me in her car. She decides... I'm going to come and overtake Alex, and I'm going to cut him up, And I'm going to have to force him to put his brakes on really fast. So we're driving the 95. Raquel comes and does that. i would be like, what are you doing? You know? I'm like, why did you do that? And then I'll be like, ah, it doesn't matter anyway. But tomorrow morning, if somebody who you don't know, and you're in a rush, you've got your work face on, I've got to get here really quick. Somebody comes behind you, they cut you off. Are you going to be as forgiving? I hope you will, but you won't. You won't. I- instead, you'll be like really mad, really angry, and you're all good Christians, so you just keep your hands on the wheel, right? Yeah, that's what you do. But you're not going to be as forgiving of them. Why? Because you don't love them, but I love my wife. I'm going to look past the faults and the wrongs of my wife. Give, give you another, another example. <clears throat> Say, say, for example, I am going to go to lunch with a friend of mine. And, and, and I go to lunch and I go to the restaurant and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and my friend just doesn't show up. And I'm going gonna, gonna to call them like, hey, where, where you at? And they're like, oh, man, I totally forgot. I'm sorry. Am I going to stop being their friend because they didn't come to lunch? Maybe like a real insecure person might, but I, I, I'm not. I'm going to look past it. I'm going to forgive them and, and, and be gracious towards them. But say if a businessman wants to come and get my business and he says to me, hey, let's meet at this restaurant. And I sit down at the restaurant and he doesn't show up. And I call him like, hey, where are you? And he says, oh, I totally forgot about it. Guess who's not going to get my business? That businessman. Why? Because I have love for my friends, but I have nothing for this guy. But the people that we love, we are a lot more gracious and forgiving towards those people. You know why? Because love looks past many faults. And did you know this morning that you are a flawed person? You are a flawed person. You are a person with many faults. When God created man, he created something that was perfect. And that perfect man disobeyed God. And the result is now you as a human being are no longer perfect. I know some of you guys, you look in the mirror in the morning, you think you're perfect, but you're not. You're not perfect. In fact, you are flawed, a flawed person. But yet, despite your flaws, despite not being perfect, God Almighty is gracious towards you. And not only that, He also sees your hurts. He sees your pains. He sees your problems. And He has compassion upon them. You know, when we often see people who are hurting, people who have issues, a natural reaction is to be sympathetic towards them, to feel sorry for them. But the person with compassion towards that person, other person, is the one who moves to act passionately, passionately to resolve their issue. If some of my friends or my spouse or my family are in trouble, I, myself, something within me wants to help them out to act passionately to resolve their issue. But if I just see on Facebook somebody, their tire blew out on the highway, or, you know, they're in trouble or something like that, I have sympathy towards them, but how often do I act in compassion? And you know what? When you have problems, when you have issues, when you have hurts, and when you have pains, God isn't just sympathetic towards you. He doesn't just feel sorry for you. In fact, God acts passionately to resolve your issue. Look at this in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 and 7. <laughs> A man called Moses has gone up to a mountain called Mount Sinai, and suddenly God appears to him. The Bible says God comes down in a cloud. And in verse 6, it says this, of chapter 34. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love by a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. So God appears to Moses and he says this, I am a God who forgives. I am a God who is gracious. I am a God who is compassionate. I am a God who lavishes love upon you. He says, I am a God who is faithful. And despite your wrongdoings, he says, I am a God who still sees the best in you. He sees the best in you. You know, when there's somebody that you don't particularly like, you see the worst of that person. Everything they do just bothers you. You see the worst of that person. But when you have somebody that you love, well, they say love is blind, right? You start to look past the flaws of that person and you see the best in that person. You start to see, you, you don't see the blemishes. You don't, you don't see the annoying actions or the annoying mannerisms. You don't, you see the annoyance of their voice when it's piercing your ears. You know, you don't see their annoying things. How their, you know, their belt and their shoes don't match. I mean, come on, you don't see stuff like that. You see the best in that person. And that's exactly what God sees in you. When God sees you, he doesn't see all your faults and your failures. He doesn't see all your sins and all your iniquities and all the things that you've done wrong. God sees you uh, for who you are and he sees the best in you. He is a God who knows what love is and he looks past your faults and he sees someone who he wants to show grace and compassion to. The first way that God loves us, He's gracious and compassionate. The second way that God shows His love towards us is this: He was willing to give up everything for you. He was willing to give up everything for you. Let me ask you today, how, much, how willing are you to give up How willing are you to give up something for the person sitting next to you, or the person across the way? How willing are you to give up so, uh, for uh, something for someone else? in this church or maybe your friends or your co-workers? What are you willing to do for your spouse? What are you willing to do for your kids or your parents or your friends? How far would your love travel? How far would it go? You know, in my late teens, I had a girlfriend. Her name was Taryn. And she was a nice girl. She was a really nice girl. And, you know, when, when I first saw her, I was kind of infatuated with her. She was, I thought she was hot and everything like that. And so I chased after her. I asked her out. And we started dating. we had, like, this on-and-off relationship for about a year and a half. And she would always tell me that she loved me. And the typical guy, when he's, like, 19 years old, he turns around and goes, yeah, I love you too. You know, I and mean, he made, made the girl feel good. But in me, I knew that I didn't really love her. I just had this, you know, this... I liked her, you know, at had the hearts for her, but I didn't really love her. And, and I didn't really understand it. I just knew there was something in me that really didn't love her. And eventually I knew that I couldn't stay with her because she thought we were going to get married. And I just knew that we weren't. Fast forward like six years later, and uh, I start dating Raquel, who is now my wife. And as soon as we started dating, after three months, I already had an engagement ring. I was ready to pop the question, and I just knew that I loved this woman. There was just something inside of me that, that knew that I loved her, but I just couldn't really explain it. And the more that we started dating, and then we got engaged, and then we got married, the more I realized. The difference between my feelings for Raquel and my feelings for this other girl that I dated before was this. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. I was willing to give up anything for Raquel. In fact, I moved halfway around the world for her, you know. just That other girl, I liked being with her, but I wouldn't give up my Saturday morning golf trip with my friends. I wouldn't give up going out in the week with my friends. You know, when she wanted me to do stuff, I'd be like, no, 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 it's all right. I wanted her on my terms. But when I, started to get, when I got married and I started to realize what this love was with Raquel, I wanted to give up everything for her. I wanted to sacrifice for her. And we live in a culture where love is often defined by a physical thing. It's also seen as an infatuation, a like for someone. We we think love is that we constantly want to be with somebody. Or we say, if you can't be with anybody else, and you can only be with this person, then you must love them. We think that love is saying, oh, I could see myself spending the rest of my life with this person. Yet love isn't that. Love is not a feeling. In fact, love is best defined by an action. You may want to spend the rest of your life with someone, but are you willing to give up your life for that person? Real love is measured by how much you are willing to sacrifice. And modern day marriages often end in divorce because we fail to sacrifice our wants for our spouse's wants. For those of you who are not married this morning and maybe you're thinking about marriage or you know, you're looking for that day when you're going to get married, don't get married to someone just because you feel an attraction towards that person or just because you couldn't see yourself with the rest, you know, with anybody else, or you just feel alive when you're with that person. Marry that person when you are ready to give up your total life for that person. And that person is ready to give up their total life for you. that's what great marriages are made of. This is what God did for us. John chapter 3 verse 16. Sure many of you know this verse. It's a famous verse. But it says this. For God loved the world so much. So God loved the world so much that he gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. So God, being the the creator of the universe, God Almighty, the the one who controls your life in the palm of His hands, the one who just with one word could destroy this world and create a new perfect world, chose to give up his prized possession for you. He chose to give up Jesus Christ for the sake of mankind. That is how much God loves you, that he is willing to give up everything for you. Now think about this for a moment. Not with hindsight, not knowing, well everything turned out good, Jesus died but he rose again and everything's happy and and hunky-dory. Don't think with hindsight. Just think in that moment when God chose to pour his love upon you and he wanted to show so much love to you that he gave his one and only son for you. That is how much God loves you. Think about somebody who is just flawed, who has so many faults, who just turns their back on you constantly, does not do things for you, who who ignores you. You want, what would you want to do for that person? Would you want to give up anything for that person? But yet you have probably done that to God, but yet God gave up everything for you. John chapter 15 and verse 13. John 15, 13. Jesus talking and he says this. He says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. So the Bible is telling us here. The Apostle John is, saying that, is quoting Jesus. And Jesus is saying this. The greatest act of love is to give up your life for another. So that they can live. Give up your life for another. Let's ponder on this for for a moment. He says, there is no greater love. There is no greater love in this world. The way that God showed his love for you when he sent Jesus Christ to come and die for you was the single greatest act of love this world has ever known. This world is between 10,000 years and 3 billion years old, just depending on which scientists that you talk to. But even 10,000 years is a lot of years. A lot of time to be passed. And God is saying this. In all that time, the greatest act of love was completed for your sake. Can we just say that God loves us? I mean, God loves us. And then the last thing. He's gracious and compassionate towards us. He said <coughs> he'll, do, he'll give up everything for us. And then the last way that God shows us love, and we'll close with this, he will never leave us. He will never leave us. You know, one of the best ways to show love to another is to stay. It's to stay. It's to be present. You know, at times life gets hard. Relationships, they strain. Outside factors often cause love to grow thin, but the greatest act of love is often shown by the very act of staying and not leaving. You know, you see a lot of these reality shows, and you see these guys who are just like jerks, you know, to, to their wives and their girlfriends, and they say, "Yeah, I love you, baby, I love you, I love you, I love you," you know." And then the next minute, then they're leaving. And they go for two weeks. And then they come back, oh, I'm sorry, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then two months later, they've left again. That isn't real love. Real love is when you stay, when life gets tough. You just ask the Baltimore Orioles fans for the last, like, ten years. I mean, come on. The real fans were the ones who were there on a, on a nasty Tuesday night when the Orioles were awful. You know, not now that we've got like, you know, Buck Showalter and all these people who were just like, you know, doing so well. But the real fans, the ones who loved the Orioles, were the ones who stayed, not left. And you know what? God is a God who stays and doesn't leave. Psalm chapter 37 And verse 28 tells us this. It says, For the Lord loves justice, and he will never abandon the godly. He will keep them safe forever, but the children of the wicked will die. So the psalmist here is saying that God will never abandon those who love him, those who are godly. God isn't one who will just get up and leave. So often we strain our relationship with him. We leave him. We we aren't committed to him. We aren't present when he wants us to be. We don't communicate when he wants us to communicate. We don't give up when he wants us to give up. But yet, despite all of that, he loves us so much that he will never abandon us. He will never leave us and he'll never give up on us. You see, God loves us so much that he wants your love for him to grow that he decides to stay present. You know, in our earthly relationships, people, things, unexpected events and problems can put a wedge between our relationships. Things like work, kids, emotions, finances, time, health. It can all cause our earthly relationships to create cracks. Yet God has promised that nothing, nothing in this universe will be able to to stop him from being present in your life. My favorite chapter in the whole Bible is found in Romans chapter (laughs) 8. I love it. I read it through a lot. And I just love some of the truth in it. And this is what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 39. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Rome, and he's saying this. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. Uh, we are being slaughtered like sheep. Then he says this, no. He asks the question, can anything separate us from God, Christ's love? And this is what he says, no. Despite all of these things, despite all the things that this life may throw at us. He says overwhelming victory is asked through Christ who loved us. And then verse 38 says this, I am convinced, this is the apostle Ball, talking about God's love. He says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. And he says this, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Instead, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from, God's, from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that will stop God being present in your life. There is nothing that can rip away God's love for you. Because you know what? God loves you. You know, I don't know your view of God today. Maybe it's a big view of God. Maybe it's a small view of God. Maybe it's a misguided view of God. But whatever your view of God is today, I want to tell you, it's not large enough to see the whole love of God. We used to sing a hymn years ago, back in the day. And the hymn went like this. One of the, one of the lines of the lyric says that if there was, uh, uh, if with ink the ocean was filled, there would not be enough to write of God's love. Think about that for a moment. Just think. If we filled the whole ocean with ink, and then we decided back in the days when you had those fountain pens and stuff before we had our little bic biros. If you took the pen and you just started writing with ink about the love of God, there would not be enough ink in the whole world to write of God's love. I mean, if that's true, I mean it's just uh, uh, somebody writing a song. But think about that for a moment. The love of God is so great. And Romans 5 verse 8 tells us that God showed his love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, he didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He loved us and he loved you when you were in your darkest state. When you were as far away from God as possible, God loved you. You see, you can never really love God, and you can never really love others in a true way until you know what it is to experience God's love. Because until you experience God's love, you will never be able to show love as love is ought to be shown. And that is why if you draw near to God today, God says that he will draw near to you and you will experience love in a whole new way. And when you experience God's love, you'll start to love your spouse more. You'll start to love your kids more. You'll start to love your parents more. You'll start to love your friends more. You'll even start to love those horrible co-workers that you work with more. And you may have come in here today thinking that you have to earn God's love. You may think, well, I'm too bad for God to love me. I've messed up for God to love me. God doesn't love me as much because uh, I'm not really as committed to him as maybe somebody else is. But that is not the case. God loves you the way that you are. And as you draw close to God, his love will start to change your life from the inside out. And you'll never be the same again. Let's bow our heads in prayer.